My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Again, with your, Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy, you know. If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. You know, tell your whole podcast. Yeah. So, who are we talking about today, Matt? distant twilight of primordial earth in the wake of an ancient cataclysm a long lost high culture sailed the oceans leaving a trail of megalithic stonework spanning our world they were remembered across the world's cultures as the nagas of india the wu dragons of china yamaru of peru Quetzalcoatl of mesoamerica the serpent clans of north america the anunnaki of asia minor the djedi of egypt the aegeans of greece levites of Palestine, Ophites, Druids, and on and on. And here to help unravel these ancient mysteries and more is our guest, Freddie Silva, best-selling author and leading researcher of ancient civilizations, restricted history, sacred sites, and their interaction with consciousness. He is also the leading expert on crop circles. He has published seven books, which include Chartes Cathedral, Secret in the Fields, The Lost Art of Resurrection, First Templar Nation, The Divine Blueprint, The Missing Lands, and most recently, Scotland's Hidden Sacred Past, which we discussed on this episode. My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I'm Mystic Mark, and thank you for tuning in. Enjoy this conversation with Freddie Silva. Well, he was a Mayan elder of great repute, and he helped uh, us understand a lot of the symbols in the crop circle world. In fact, most of the early symbols were pretty much deciphered by Native American people. And so he was there in 1994, which is about the time when I joined the uh, the whole thing. And I remember going up to one of the hills next to the giant's grave at West Kennet Log Barrow, opposite Silbury Hill. And uh, he uh, channeling, he was just saying, there's going to be some symbols around here in the next few days about the place of the last ceremonial day and literally within a couple of days, the symbol appears right there across the field from where he was. So they seem to be following him as well. But the funny thing is, there's a connection here because in fact, I just finished a, a documentary, my 14th documentary two days ago on the Maya and the origin of the Maya. There's, a, there's another older culture that precedes them, by the way, and nobody knows about them. And culture is based on a group of people called the Its, who migrated from a central uh, island in the middle of the Atlantic before a big flood took it out. And they were called the People of the Serpent.
because there's so little information on them. Mm. And also, I mean, the, a lot of them are mistaken for uh, very ancient stuff, but they're actually put there by the early farmers. They resemble a lot of the field stuff that we have in Southern England. And, and a lot of them are also natural features. For example, there's a big wall not far from where I live uh, near uh, Morse Mountain. It's right by the beach. And if you didn't know anything about geology, you'd think that there's a major megalithic wall fortress there. But that's just the way that uh, the rock works in this part of the world. And with the heating and the cooling that we have from summer to winter, it, the rock breaks in very geometric forms. And you think you're in Peru somewhere. So there's a couple of places like I mean, New England Stonehenge is not far from where I live, which is a terrible name, by the way. It looks nothing like Stonehenge. Right. And there's lots of interesting alignments. But you know what? I never felt the need to go there. I don't know why. I, I used to live in, in New Hampshire, so it's even closer back then. But there are a lot of interesting things which no longer exist and they're actually up in Maine when they uh, were building the uh, first roads here they found these very large mounds with dual entrances the only time you ever get those uh, looking like 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 the ones in Maine are in the west coast of France which is right over there so it's, it's, there's no doubt that people from the West of Europe did arrive here, but so much of it has been destroyed to build, you know, modern highways and things. What we get are the postcards now. Mm. Wow. Fascinating. I'd like to go and uh, start from the beginning, if you'd entertain that. I understand that you were born in Portugal, and when I was reading your book, The First Templar Nation, I was fascinated to find that there was such a deep connection with the Templars to Portugal. So I wonder, is there, in your mind, has it, has it ever crossed your mind that maybe some sort of energy was emanating from their sites and affected the young Freddie Silva? I began to wonder too, because I don't look Portuguese. I'm the tallest Portuguese person <laughs> in the universe. I was blonde and green-eyed when I was growing up. But the funny thing is, the place where I was born, it's at the base of a mountain west of Lisbon, and it's very mystical. They've got stuff there, some of the oldest sacred sites in Europe. There's not much left of them. And I found out when I was researching material for the missing lands about the missing civilizations of the flood that uh, one of the group of people that left the sinking island in the middle of the Atlantic, which the Yucatec people call Atal, for where we get Atlantic from, they arrived in exactly the place where I was born in Portugal and they were extremely tall, blonde, light-skinned, blue-eyed. <laughs> and that makes you wonder uh, 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 what's going on here. I'm beginning to suspect that something's going on. I, I appear to have inherited some of that DNA. Mm. But I certainly don't belong in that culture in terms of looks or uh, mentality. And it's, it's very much shaped the way I work. So, yeah, who knows? Uh, if there's something going on there. And, and also the original name of Portugal, which is Lusitania, means the, the place that holds the light. So this is a place where the old wisdom keepers first arrived from the sinking of this island nation in the Atlantic 11,000 years ago. And from there, they went through Europe doing exactly what we're talking about, you know, promoting the wisdom. So it's kind of ironic that um, a lot, you know, back in the 12th century, the Templars show up exactly in the same place to start this utopian kingdom. And they went and secured the places which had already been dedicated to Isis or her regional doppelganger. And uh, so when you go to these Templar places in Portugal, you do get a sense that there's something special there because they already were venerated and the Templars were essentially protecting a sacred site that already had a long history to it. Mm. Wow. Fascinating. And 
I've heard you mention before that Orion is seen throughout many different cultures as a possible uh, forebearer or a connector of knowledge and all sorts of things. Do the Templars share this similar kinship with Orion or are they more about the goddess and Isis? I think it's more about the goddess. I'd never seen any information that uh, touched on Orion from their point of view, but it was something that I researched at length just by the fact that I, you know, I'm in contact with so many ancient cultures. And the one thing that kept popping up about the origin of where they got their information from, and they always end up going back to Orion. Now we hear about the Pleiades a lot as well, which is more to do with teaching. That's something very different, but it's always to do with Orion. So whether you're in New Zealand or Easter Island or in Cambodia or in Yucatan, in other parts of the world, to Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, it's always the relationship to Orion. And when you start pushing the idea a little bit further and you ask more information, it seems that uh, all of these people, without question, hold Orion as being the birthplace of civilization. In some cases, they talk about it being the birthplace of human beings, which is extraordinary. If you go to Japan and you look at the, the those big red Tory arches, the ones which are you know, we have the beautiful red crossbar and the uprights. That represents the belt stars of Orion and the place where you walk through those arches, you go into the sacred space. You're supposed to be a kind of symbolic version of the heart of the universe. And that is essentially the uh, lower section of the Orion uh, cluster where there's a nebula called M42, which NASA now admits to being a major star-forming region of the galaxy. So what did these people know that we don't? Because the same idea is also lodged in the Yucatan with the Maya. And before them as well, their, their predecessors, they're talking about this particular section at the heart of Orion as being a star-forming region, a place where the gods came from, that where the knowledge came from and also where humans ultimately came from as well. So there's this recurring pattern of information all around the world that links it back to this specific and, you know, quite uh, impressive constellation, which I guess is why it gets our attention even to this very day. Absolutely. And you can see the the sort of geometry reflected in those archways. You know, it, it does sort of yeah. remind you of what you see in the sky with the legs of Orion now, I understand your latest book is all about Scotland, and this to me is absolutely fascinating. I myself have oh, good. some Scottish blood, and I think it's it's something you mentioned that not enough people recognize the the you know real intriguing qualities of what's lying there in Scotland. It seems to be maybe a little bit undervalued compared to some of our other megaliths. What inspired you to go and set out to do this book aside from that? Uh, because no one knows where the Scottish megaliths come from. No one knows where the towers came from. They had these iconic round towers called duns or rocks if you're in the mainland. And then there are these horn mounds, uh, these passage mounds, which no one knows where they've come from. They don't belong in the British Isles. And there's so little history that's written down. Uh, most of it gets destroyed by warfare uh, and religion, of course. It just made me even more uh, determined to find out uh, because there's so much there, like you said, that is very important and it's still in a great state of preservation. And a few people get to go there because it's so difficult to get to, uh, particularly the weather, so it was very challenging. So we have a place which is A, 
remotely uh, or sparsely uh, populated to it's sparsely attended, which means you can get some good quality work done. And three, uh, there's a big hole of information. And uh, the one thing that I began to look at was to see uh, this pattern of uh, stone circles and also relationships to people that came from somewhere else. They were dressed in white robes. They spoke a different language. They looked different to everyone that lived there. And all you have this trail of breadcrumbs. You have no idea where this is going. And that's what really inspired me to find out, well, where did these people come from? Where did this civilization come from? And it was during a trip to Sardinia with uh, Regina Meredith, often go on her show. We worked together for Gaia. And we went there to look at something completely different. And it turns out that a lot of the answers were actually in Sardinia. But even there, the story didn't stop right there because no one really knows where the civilization from Sardinia came from. So if you ask the local historians, the archaeologists, people will say, well, there's this incredible neuragic culture. Okay, but what does neuragic mean? And no one could give me a straight answer. So I had to actually learn Armenian <laughs> to understand how the culture in Sardinia came to be. And from that point, I began to see the commonality with the stuff in Scotland, not just in terms of structure and the way it's designed, because all of the uh, uh, megaliths and their towers and the mounds had their predecessors over 7,000 years earlier in Asia Minor. But the language also came with the people that migrated to Scotland. So all the place names that we take for granted today, you can break them down in Armenian language and they actually tell you and describe what those places are. And I thought that was fascinating. Uh, I didn't see that one coming at all. Now, yeah, and I don't blame you for that. Armenia seems to be uh, maybe a contentious place in the past hundred or so years with this genocide going on there. We often see, you know, these political bodies coming in to rewrite the history of places that seem to have a, a connection to the old world. And maybe that's intentional, maybe not. I know that might not be your particular opinion, but I wonder, you know, what what else can we learn from Armenia? What What's so significant about this place? Do you think this was possibly where this civilization or this other group of people, the white-robed beings, first landed? It's beginning to look that way. There's not many Armenians left, comparatively speaking. And at the moment I published this information, I, I made a lot of friends in Armenia almost automatically. I, I think half of Armenia is friends with me on Facebook, and uh, especially a lot of their academics. And they're very keen to share what they know because no one takes them seriously. Because the, the, so much of our history in the Western world has been, was written in the uh, Victorian era by a bunch of uh, white academics who have no idea what the hell they're talking about. These were just either prejudices or or suppositions or opinions of which you got stated this fact, but no one ever asked the Armenian people what they thought. And now that you understand a lot of the Armenian language and also the architecture in that region, which by the way includes Turkey, you know, we could go back to the way that the political system has moved in that part of the world in the last 200 years. Armenia actually used to touch the northern border of Egypt once upon a time. And there was a lot of intermarriage between the pharaohs of Egypt and Armenian brides. For Nefertiti was actually of Armenian origin. She doesn't look Egyptian at all. And uh, so when you start looking at that from that point of view, you realize that there's a lot to offer. And um, 
When I was writing my previous book, The Missing Lambs, about the missing civilizations before the flood, everything kept going back to the Anunnaki, who always get such a bad reputation, and undeservedly so. Again, it's just through prejudice. And I kept trying to track down where these people originally lived. I wanted to find the origin of where all this came from. And eventually, I narrowed it down to eight islands around the world or places that behave like islands. So, for example, one of them was on Lake Titicaca, which back then was a big inland ocean in South America. And you have one of the oldest temple cities in the world, Chihuanaku, which is back then an island. That culture is also related etymologically and also by design to the Armenian highlands. That was a huge aha moment. So eventually when I traced the people of Anu back to the Armenian highlands, uh, I think I've actually found the original point where they actually lived, which means that once the nearest, let's see, once Azerbaijan stops shelling Armenia, there's a bit of a civil war going on there right now. Uh, I want to go back there and actually find the origin of these things because we're very close to understanding that this may be a real crucible of civilization. Uh, certainly, it is the foundation for the Sumerian culture. It precedes the Sumerian culture. And also, it also is the uh, root of all the stories from where the Bible got its information from, or I should say where the Hebrews got their information from to build the Bible. They just changed the names and the locations to give them a favorable impression. But then everybody else was doing that as well. So once you get rid of the political motives behind all these stories, you begin to see the importance of how much the Armenian highlands have to bear, not just on Asia Minor, but on Northern Indian culture, Sumerian culture, the Asia Minor culture, eventually the Scythian and Greek cultures. And from that, the migration around 6,000 BC across Europe to France, Portugal, and eventually Ireland and Northern Scotland. So you see how big this story really is. I've just tapped into something very big, and I'm now in touch with several historians in Armenia who really want this story out before they all die, basically, of old age. It's a very important rewriting of history that we're dealing with here. Yeah, no, and I commend you for it. I mean, 13 documentaries, seven books, and you say it so eloquently and in such a comprehensive way, it's almost impossible for me to go in and try to parse out each detail. But I'm going to attempt to, Mr. Silva, because I think our audience here on this show is fascinated by this topic. And to your earlier point about this Victorian revision of history, it has done such a disservice, I think, to the modern mind, particularly the Western mind. And I don't know if it'll be recognized in your lifetime, unfortunately, but I do think one day there will be a day mm. where scholars like yourself will be recognized for the you know tremendous work that you're doing. So please, you know, don't, 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 don't you know, <laughs> yeah, well, don't get frustrated. Keep up the great work. I got to ask you though, you mentioned Armenia touching all the way down to Egypt, stretching that far. So we'd have to assume that Gobekli Tepe was a part of this civilization. And that one seems to get the most attention, maybe because it's not in a you know contentious zone. But what are your thoughts on Gobekli Tepe? It seems like mainstream archaeology wants to come in and, and tell people what it is or isn't. But I think there's probably, like many other megalithic sites, two sides to the story. There's a lot of sides to it, and we won't find that in our lifetime because the entire hill is an artificial sacred site, and there's at least 53 Did you? still buried. Have you got me? 
I'm sorry. I stepped on my headphone cord. <laughs> <laughs> we the recording uh, got you though. Technology. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll never get to completely uncover the whole of the hill. There's 53 more stone circles still buried, but what little we know. First of all, you've got to take away the Turkish uh, side of things here. It's a very political game. You have to go back and understand that the whole area was part of the Armenian highlands. And in fact, there's an older site which precedes Gobekli Tepe by another 10,000 years. I'm not talking loosely here. Uh, and it's a mirror image of the most famous stone circle in Scotland, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So once you understand the politics of the region, we have to take away the name Gobekli Tepe. Forget that. That's not what it, what the original name is. The original name in Armenian is Portasar, which essentially means the hill of the umbilical uh, cord or the, of, the, of the belly, the hill of the belly. However, there's an overlap here with Egyptian language as well, because port means the same thing. It means an umbilical cord. Asar happens to be the original name of Osiris. Osiris is a Greek transliteration of Egyptian. That's not what his name was. His real name was Asar, which he was equated with a great mountain, which is, of course, Quebecli Tepe, but also the fact that he was also associated with Orion. Now, stay with me for a second. If you stand in enclosure D of a Quebecli Tepe, which is the one that gets all the attention, and rightly so, it has all the most beautifully carved stones, uh, people keep telling you to look at the sky towards the north, uh, which is covered by a big hill. Uh, and there's a lot of connections to sickness. I don't actually find that a very reliable theory because you have a, a, a big mound blocking your view of the sky. But if you turn around and look to the southeast, you've got an unobstructed view of the plain for 200 miles. And there are three stones. If you stand in between the two central stones and look at the three stones framing it on the edge, there are markers and they give you this very precise date. On the winter solstice of 10,400 BC, the first stone, you see the first rising of Orion's belt on the horizon. The middle stone marks the midheaven position, and the third stone marks the setting of Orion's belt on that date. Now, one of those moments where you suddenly uh, fed the information from the sky somewhere, and you get this lovely image, because I'm thinking, umbilical cord of Osiris, what has this got to do with Egypt? And suddenly you realize that date, is very important because on the spring equinox, you know, 800 miles away in Egypt on the Giza plateau, you have the three pyramids as a mirror image of the bell stars of Orion. So there's your first connection here. And of course, Osiris is the Lord of Giza. Now that's his dwelling place. Now, I just took it upon myself to take in this little vision that I got in my head. I was asked to, people who know me understand how I work. I, I, I get my information from somewhere else, then I have to do this, the science behind it so that people realize I'm actually mad. So I was shown this image of taking a cord from the smaller pyramid, from the corner of the smaller pyramid, through the corner of the big pyramid. Now we can do that on Google Earth, and we also have highly accurate archeological survey maps to do this with. So you can get a pretty good bearing down to a fraction of, a, of an arc of, of a degree. So when you extend that cord all the way through the three pyramids, you end up at Portasar in ancient Armenia. So there's your biblical cord of Osiris. The two sides are saying that they are connected to each other. So the memory of the connection is memorized in the name of the place. And that's what they were very good at, which is why it's so important to learn about the ancient names of things, because they told you what they do. 
The problem is, of course, you have to learn a lot of either dead languages or languages that are now falling into decay. So this is why Armenian becomes a very important fingerprint in, in the understanding of the ancient world. Absolutely. It's it's so funny the way these things kind of synchronistically happen because A, I was yes. just speaking with, well, on my side of things, Freddie, I was just speaking with a man named Richard Grossinger. You might be familiar with him who lives in Maine yesterday. So two for two, Maine back to back. What are the odds? And then last week I was speaking with a gentleman named Chad Stemke, who's researched Heart Plaza. And you mentioned that, and Heart Plaza's in Detroit, Michigan. You mentioned that Orion is like the heart of the universe. Well, yeah. he's found that the Stargate architecture built in this Heart Plaza reflects exactly the Orion constellation and the pyramid complex at Giza. And this is all built by a Japanese, or I'm sorry, a Chinese American architect named Asama Naguchi. So this is, you know, it's, it's mind blowing how, you know, this kind of thing is being built in our ancient past and all the way up to modern times, you know, in 1970, somebody was building Hart Plaza in honor of Orion in, in symmetry with these, these things. But, Oh, I think there's a lot more going on in Detroit. I've been there several times. Yeah. I love it. I love central Detroit. It's a beautiful city. It's like Manhattan without people. And I, when I was walking around between conferences and, and the speeches, I noticed a lot of sacred stuff going on there, a lot of little sort of nod in the wing to people who understand the symbology. And that's how Freemasonry used to contact itself and how it used to set these things apart. And I was in the lobby of this incredible building, and I forget what it's called, but it's a beautiful, beautiful building, uh, last place where you have Tiffany glass still in place and in use. And it now has a cafe, has a bank, in the, but you can sit around in the weekend there's nobody around. And I suddenly realized there's a big map of this ISIS-looking figure in mosaic at the back of the uh, the building. And I'm looking at the whole of Michigan, the house laid out, and I'm thinking, hello, someone in the Freemasonry movement set down a lot of these settlements in America, and they're setting down something very important because there's certain places in Detroit that feel just, you've got that vibe. You know, I got the, I call it the tingly wingly. You know, it's, it's the same feeling I get when I go into a major sacred site. There's certain places around Detroit which I think, just like Washington, D.C., were deliberately designed to invoke a specific field to, you know, raise a level of humanity. Of course, it depends who's in charge of it at, at each time. It doesn't mean that it always works. It means that the, the foundation of the city is set up in a certain way to elevate the human spirit. And, of course, once in a while, you get people in charge who, you know, corrupt the system, and you end up with violence and um, all kinds of things that befell Detroit in the last decade. But now it's having a resurgence. So... I'm not surprised, actually. I, I, I'm, in fact, I'm actually, I have it on the back burner of actually doing something about Detroit, doing a bit of research there, and maybe doing a project on it. But we'll see how it goes. Fascinating. Yeah, please keep me updated on that. I have a particular interest lately in not just Detroit, but American city planning and how they are utilizing exactly what you're finding in these ancient sites within yep. modern design. So it. The, the craft continues. And you mentioned earlier, jokingly, and, and 
I don't think you're mad. You're on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast here, Freddie. So you're right <laughs> at home. You're, you're right at home. And I've heard you talk about them before, the management, right? We have... And here they are on the list. Yeah. Well, we have we have the management, right? And yeah, that somebody that's some, somewhat important to me just messaged me, but I'll, I'll ignore that. Tell me about this, because it's the 20th anniversary of your book, discussing crop circles a seminal work on crop circles and you had a pretty profound experience in a crop circle that seems to have begun this journey for you am i wrong there did this sort of inspire where you've been since this this encounter you had in the crop circle it was a culmination of several experiences which are happening at the same time which were forcing me now with hindsight to rethink my life and where i was going i was i thought i had my life pretty much mapped out but i didn't really realize that my soul had another purpose and i basically got distracted with what, what my ego wanted but that happens to so many of us and i had to be sort of literally taken apart to be rebuilt into the person that i've become uh, and i'm very happy for it i mean it's been bloody difficult and it still is but you know what I wouldn't change the uh, experience for anything else. I'm happy doing what I'm doing. And uh, it was it was finally this um, culmination of forces where I was very close to understanding the source of what was really behind the crop circles. You know, we had studied human-made crop circles. We understood how wind does swings to crops. But it was the other stuff that was really fascinating. And I really wanted to get to the heart of what, what was behind it and who was behind it. So I get levitated in this crop circle in the middle of the night got taken out of body and uh, met these very unusual people, very tall, dressed in these white robes, just like they had in Scotland. They described them exactly in the same way, the builders of these monuments. And I met them again, the Great Pyramid, I want to say about four years later, coming out of the stones. And I have witnesses to back me up on this. And those things change your life. They really do because they give you confidence to proceed. And having just with my previous book, The Missing Lands, I kind of came around full circle because I was talking about these people who call themselves the shining ones. And they said that they originally had been in human form and I had no idea what they were talking about. Uh, this was all given through channel material for a very gifted friend of mine. And I, I, in the back of my head, I've been kind of following their trail for all my work without really planning it. And it was only in the last book when I realized my God, yeah, we can actually trace them through human history. So in a way, I've been kind of redeeming them and also building up evidence to back up the fact that these people have been be uh, watching our back as a civilization for over 12,000 years. So, and the Scotland situation really was the culmination of their bloodline here on Earth, which eventually ends up in Ireland with a group of people called the Tuatabhadid, who originated back in the Armenian highlands 6,000 years before that. So all this is coming around full circle with the with the crop circle work and again i haven't planned this it just seems to be going in that direction and this is why i never take full credit for what i do i, I do realize there's a lot of stuff that's coming through me and i just write it down it makes very little sense but then if you push the envelope and you research it the information is there and that's the hard part it's also the fun part because you get to hang around in libraries around the world and read some very unusual books, uh, which few people get to hang uh, their hands on. So that's how the, the story is pretty much developed in my life. And it's worked out pretty well so far. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say so. And I, you know, I'm definitely seeing full circle on a whole nother level. Maybe you can appreciate this too, because are you familiar with the gentleman named Joshua Kutchin? 
and his work on fairies and, and the fae. So he's interpreted a lot of these fairy encounters in the same way we might interpret UFO encounters. And to see that you're going and, and from crop circles to this ancient, you know, all these ancient sites, I wonder, you know, what are your thoughts on UFOs? It's not particularly something I'm dead set on, but I, I'm just wondering, you know, do you think UFOs are connected to this story somehow? We have this sort of cliche version of these things on ancient aliens, you know, oh. giving us kind of, yeah, overly summarized version. But what are your honest thoughts on UFOs and how they fit into this equation? Oh, well, I, you, all you have to do is ask any native culture, any indigenous people about them, and they're very open about it. They said, oh, they come here every few weeks for tea. What else do you want to know? They really are that matter of fact about it. And they've always equated them with the people who originally, and now I'm talking over 12,000 years ago, we're talking about a remote age before the flood, before the ice age, everything. They're saying that these were people who have much in physical form here. They're already part of a dying civilization here on earth. And after the flood, things changed. Most humans died. Most divine inhabitants of these lands also died too. And it was their survivors that helped us you know, get our a sense of culture, our sense of civilization. And after that, there's a bit of a, a vacuum of information. You almost have to be part of these tribes in order to understand what was going on. Because understandably, when uh, Europeans moved into their lands and killed them all, they are not going to be very forthcoming with information. I don't blame them. You know, once I've made friends with a few people, with the Hopi, uh, with the Zuni, and also with the Waitahara in New Zealand, who, again, another ancient culture no one's heard of, um, you, you become privy to certain information and they're saying, yeah, no, the, there's a time when these people actually live with us. These gods, as they call them, live with us. Now, you have to understand that a god is someone who understands the laws of nature. It's not a white guy sitting with a beard on a throne. That's a Christian misunderstanding. So anyone can be a god. If I understand the rules of how to make this coffee cup work and levitate, I become as a god. That's all it is. And they're saying at one point they lived here among us and then things changed. They evolved. So they developed means to get back to their point of origin, which they keep mentioning as Orion as being a point of origin. And then now, in, in our era, they kind of visit once in a while. They come in their flying shields, as the Hopi call them, and then they go back to where they came from. And they basically have a vested interest in the outcome of human affairs because Everything that we do here has a resonance that goes beyond the earth uh, because nothing is really that physical in the universe. Everything's to do with resonance. So if we blow the hell out of each other, as Putin is trying to do in the Ukraine right now, not to get too, then that reverberates through eternity and it's going to affect the outcome of other civilizations elsewhere who are already at a further stage of development. So they can't intervene in our affairs directly, but they can suggest to humans who are open-minded to evolve. And that's one reason why the crop circles are appearing here, because the crop circles are part of an extension of uh, sacred design or sacred architecture. It's the same thing. It's the same technology made by the same people over thousands of years, just made in flattened crop. And they're saying that, you know, in order to get humans to move beyond their perceived helplessness and also to get us away from things like fossil fuels and to start evolving with new ideas, they're implanting information into the fields that eventually gets into the heads of scientists and the odd author or two. And slowly the information leaks out into the public arena and some people won't buy it, but some will. So that essentially is what how the UFOs fit into the big picture, that we are visited very regularly. We are being looked at and also 
observed, and not all of them have the, our best interests at stake. Just like you know, here on Earth, you know, you have the uh, minority who are always creating all kinds of problems, but. The majority of people and the majority of people who have UFO technology, you know, they're working for positive outcomes because they recognize the importance of cooperation. Mm -hmm. We're all in this together. Even though we don't know how to do faster than light speed, it doesn't matter. The point is we're all interconnected. So I do believe that they exist. I mean, I've seen my fair share of strange things when I was sitting out in fields in England looking for, waiting for crop circles to appear. You know, they'd always appear behind you, of course. They never kind of give away way how they're made, which is kind of frustrating. It's a bit of a game, but we'd see the odd unusual thing flying around in the sky at big speed, then it makes a complete right angle turn. And that's not a, a satellite or anything else. And they're always appearing around the old uh, giant's graves, the old passage mounds, by the way. Mm. So they're using the same form of energy that we have here on Earth to get from A to B. But I've, I, I mean, I've never felt particularly threatened by them. And I actually feel that they've been very helpful, which any native culture would agree with. Yeah. And I, I would see, you know, parallels to that in all cultures. I mean, we have this concept of the muse. Modern artists talk about this even today. You know, rock musicians have talked about this. And as a child, as a younger man, I found a bunch of strange, interesting books there. A lot of them are still behind me. And one of them had this language of crop circles, right? And this is exactly how they posed it. They gave me a set of symbols and all the symbols, the crows are just going mad outside. I'm sorry about that. But the, <laughs> but the, the crop circles, I remember being fascinated by them and drawing them. And I wondered to myself, like, is there a, a signature here that I'm picking up on? And if so, what is the purpose of leaving these symbols in a field? Because to me, without an airplane, I wouldn't be able to behold the the actual shape of this standing on the ground. So is is it more than just the, the visual image? Is there an actual energy component to being in the field, standing there with the crop circle? And do you think they're intended to see them from, from above? Do they Are they made for a civilization with the ability to fly? All of the above. I have a very good book I can suggest. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can't believe this thing is still 20 years old and it's still relevant today. It's incredible. No, the original conversation goes back before the Second World War. There was a group of mystics, mostly in England, but also around Europe and possibly the whole world, that sensed that there's a big change in human affairs that was coming. And this was back in the early 1930s. They could see uh, the devastation and the wrong turn that civilization was going in. And I think that those prayers and those thoughts went out into space, as they do, okay? All our thoughts, all our energy, all our emotion goes into space, uh, goes into everywhere. And it was picked up by another consciousness. Now, this consciousness eventually communicates back to us in the shape of crop circles. And it was picked up by a uh, woman who was a bank liaison officer who has a history in her family of great channel connection. It's actually in their blood, in that family's blood. And she had no idea what this information was about, about the fact that they were going to be making these signs that would help human evolve, that would raise or help uh, assist in the raising of human evolution. And in seven days of Earth's time, they would show these symbols at the base of the hill of light. Now, 
if you live in Wiltshire in England, you'd know what this hill of light is. It's called Silbury Hill, the hill of the shining beings or the shining ones. And that's exactly how they call themselves. We, we're the shining ones. We also call ourselves the watchers. Well, these are the same people called the Anunnaki who around 12,000 years ago, they're the same people who were the Vita Koshas, that same group of people, but they're no longer physical. They're now in a lower level of reality, but still very much living as we are in this world, just looking very, very different to where we are now. And the idea was that they would communicate in a non-threatening form that would use art as a bait in order to get people's attention, more um, so than others. But the most important thing is that the uh, the symbols were there for several reasons. One was to uh, hit the earth as strategic hotspots that will actually instruct the earth to prolong its turning in other words, the Earth has to evolve as well as we do. And, it's, uh, and it reaches a point where things have to evolve. And in order for that evolve to take place, it means that there's going to be a lot of climatic changes and also physical changes. Now, since we're totally unprepared for the changes that are coming, they said, and I quote, we're doing this to buy humans time to realize that they're in the middle of huge changes and you're not going to survive unless you're prepared. So we're in the middle of a massive catastrophe and we know this, we can feel it. So it, they're buying us time to get our S-H-I-T together so that we can prepare. And the more prepared you are, the chances are that you will survive as everyone before us has had. The second point was that there was an energetic imprint, which is measurable. And now we've done this again and again and again in crop circles. We've taken seeds from the crop circles. We've take, we've done germination tests. We compared them to man-made designs. We compared them to normal seeds and the, the seeds outgrow man-made designs and normal seed reproduction by two to one. So there's a fertilizing quality to this energy and it's measurable. Even the farmers have actually remarked on this. So the third part was to do with the fact that there are healing modalities involved in the crop circles. And that's something that I've been involved with now for 20 years. Develop a series of uh, a card system that people are using in, uh, in terms of radionics or homeopathy. And I tell you, even men from Republican states are buying these cards off me. So and I, no one's ever asked for a refund. So I know something is working because we've had the energy of the cards measured and there's a definite imprinting in those symbols. And there's only 49 of those that work. The other ones are just for something else. Well, there's other symbols that don't belong part of this group. Again, quoting the channeling, they said that there is also an energetic blueprint, a technological blueprint of being established within the crop circles. And the idea is that they would put ideas into the heads of our leading scientists to wean us away from fossil fuels. And they said it's to do with the illusion of gravity. Now, the reason why I put the picture on the cover of, of, the, of my books, I did, much to the chagrin of my publisher, and I said, unless this picture is on the front cover, I am declining the entire book. Now, that's a hell of a risk to take when you've given up your marriage and your whole life, everything, and you've staked it on this book and you're about to you know, kick your publisher up the ass. And for three days, there's a Mexican standoff. None, no one talked to anybody. And I thought, maybe I've got a little bit of it over my head. And they actually relented. They allowed the picture to go on there because I knew what the picture is doing. It's full of technological information and Believe it or not, three groups of scientists, one in London, one in Oklahoma, of all places, and one in Australia, have built that crop circle as a three-dimensional device, and it defies gravity. It's an anti-gravity device. 
exactly as wow. Howling had said. Yeah. And that's why this is so important. And they're just saying that I haven't been in touch with them for a few years, but they're saying we're waiting for the right political moments in which to bring out this information. Because sometimes you have to keep your head under the uh, the castle walls, otherwise you'll get shot. You know, like the guy in Seattle who designs a car powered by water, and he's incredibly, he's run over by his own car. Uh, it's funny how these things tend to happen to people, mm. that, you know, really create new things, which get us to wean off this terrible thing called oil. So it's all coming true. The channeling is all coming true. The crop circles, which are built on the same rules as ancient sacred sites, and as same rules as pyramids, built by the same people, now in a non-physical form, it's all becoming true. And this is 25 um, years later, 30 years later. So it's very encouraging that we are given a helping hand in our way forward. But, you know, we're the ones who have to implement the information. They're not going to solve anything for us. Absolutely. Yeah. And well said. I want to maybe fast forward because, as you mentioned, that book is very old now, 20 years old, in fact, anniversary, congratulations. But I, I want to go and fast forward to your most recent work, because as we mentioned, we're both in New England, and here there's a, a sort of Gaelic connection to the Algonquin languages, right? Mm -hmm. Have you learned about this? And I wonder, you know, what are your thoughts? You mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that most of the stone structures here in New England are not as old as, as what you see in Scotland, but is there a chance that there was some sort of cultural connection between the groups in Northern Europe and the British Isles and the natives here in this part of the Americas? I wouldn't doubt it because everybody was getting here. Columbus never got here, by the way. <laughs> he never actually landed in America. Uh, that's a funny thing. No, everybody was getting here. When the Vikings showed up, the Portuguese were already here. Figure that one out. So it was already old information. Now, we're missing a lot of information because we've basically killed off all the people that knew the stuff. That's the problem. All we have is the remains of these structures. Now, yeah, all the way from Maine, all the way to Connecticut, we have field walls. Most of those were built by, not by the native people, but by early Europeans, because they so resemble a lot of the field walls that I've seen in throughout Britain. It's not a big mystery. But there are other things which are unusual. There is uh, in New Hampshire, the place called Stone America Stonehenge, a, a terrible name, uh, but specific alignments and specific chambers, which seem to mimic what was happening in Western France, for example, or in islands, but they're not built as well. So it's, it shows that there's a sort of a, a degradation of style, which suggests they're much, much later. And that seems to tie in with a lot of stories in mythology in Western France and Ireland that people did sell to the New World, as they, as they called it, and they built a few structures here. I mean, when I lived in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, I actually lived on an old Druid sacred site, the only little hill in the whole of Portsmouth. My house, used to, there used to be a mound there, and that nothing worked in the house in terms of computers or anything until I moved the energy out of the house and grounded it. It was the strangest thing. It was still working when I when I bought the property. And there's also a mound north of where I live in Portland, where there was a, it was a, if you're in France, it would have seemed completely natural because it's a massive passage mound two entrances, which is very rare. And the only time you'll ever see that is on the west coast of France in Karnak. Uh, so it's essentially a, a straight shot from Portland all the way uh, to the co west coast of France. And yes, there is that sort of uh, language connection with the Algonquin, which I've kind of just 
touched on briefly. I don't know much about it, but yes, it does seem to be uh, a cultural and etymological connection, which the native people picked up from settlers that came here from Western Europe. So yeah, other than that, it's just that we, we don't have any more information. Like I said, we've killed off all the people that knew all these things. This is really annoying. It, it kind of makes you want to turn the clock back 400 years and get here before all the European settlers, you know, began to wipe out everybody, either deliberately or through smallpox, so you could learn this information. And the next time you pick up the knowledge, it's you're deep into Arizona and New Mexico with the Hopi and the Zuni, who themselves are connected to the Japanese culture. And that's a very interesting uh, overlap. So I think that the, this North America is much more complicated than we imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. I've even uh, learned on, on the Susquehanna River, which is a Gaelic word in origin, the largest river on the East Coast. There's a Conestoga River that comes in. It's called the Conestoga River. It got the name Conestoga Wagon, which helps settle the West, right? Well, at this junction point where the two rivers meet is a stone that has carvings that were unexplained by archaeologists until I think 20, 30 years ago, a man, a Mayan elder named Talakiel carrying the title Talakiel. Well, yes. You know this, you know the gentleman. He helped us understand a lot of the crop circles from 1994. Wow, this is amazing. So I've only heard about Talakiel through second hand, but you've met him. Wow. So he recognized, you know, a carving on this stone and said, this is a symbol from our our culture in, in Maya, which to me says that you know, this information spread all the way from Central America up as far north as Pennsylvania, possibly further. But yeah, it is, it's fascinating. What what can you say about Talakiel? There are people in the audience who have heard us, my friend Mike and I talk about him several times. So I'd love to know more. Well, he was a Mayan elder of great repute, and he helped uh, us understand a lot of the symbols in the crop circle world. In fact, most of the early symbols were pretty much deciphered by Native American people. And so he was there in 1994, which is about the time when I joined the uh, the whole thing. And I remember going up to one of the hills next to the giant's grave at West Kennet Longbarrow, opposite Silbury Hill. And uh, he uh, channeling, he was just saying, there's going to be some symbols around here in the next few days about the place of the last ceremony your dance and literally within a couple of days the symbol appears right there across the field from where he was so they seem to be following him as well but the funny thing is there's a connection here because in fact i just finished a, a documentary my 14th documentary two days ago on the maya and the origin of the maya there's a, there's another older culture that precedes them by the way and nobody knows about them and culture is based on a group of people called the its who migrated from a central uh, island in the middle of the atlantic before a big flood took it out and they were called the people of the serpent and the people of the serpent were the same people that moved to where i was born in portugal and the one thing that connects them all they were all nicknamed the shining ones which are the people making the crop circles in non-physical form, of right, course. Right. So you see how all of this is coming around now. So I believe he also fits in as an elder as part of the story because it's really the elders who are giving us the, you know, the keys to understanding these blueprints of our changing evolution. Fantastic. Wow. And and thank you for letting me know that you have a new documentary. I wasn't aware of that. And the Mayans are are particularly of interest. I just had a really fascinating guest on talking about Jose Arguelles' uh, dream spell calendar and and how important B 
being in sync with the actual rhythm of the earth is because this, you know, Augustinian Caesarian calendar and then, you know, all the, the Gregorian calendar, right? They just inch by inch pushed us off of the actual cycle that we're supposed to be in alignment with that all of these structures are in alignment with and it's no wonder that most people you know don't feel a calling you know and i wonder if the calendar has something to do with that at large where it's it's rare individuals like yourself who who feel the call to to decipher this but wow fascinating fascinating stuff i've heard from a past guest that stonehenge was demagnetized and taken out of its spot. I know we don't have a lot more time, but what are your thoughts on Stonehenge? Is that true that it was removed from its its location, its original location, and and like de-energized? I don't think so. That's, no. that's not been my experience at all. What, the only thing that's moved are the original stones because, and again, we're going back to channel material. Uh, I do wish that the archaeologists would tap in more into our channeling group because we're 20 years ahead of them. We already knew about the holes around Stonehenge. There, I think there's 56 holes around them. And uh, we knew that they were dated to 8,000 beasts. So most of Britain is still under ice at that point. So we're talking now within 1,600 years of the flood. So the original circle stones then eventually gets moved to what became the blue stones at the center in 3100 bc ironically all of these changes and movements of the stones in the same uh, area to, to do with the movement of the sky over time because if the if the temple doesn't align to the sky as because the sky changes every two and a half thousand years then the temple is just nothing much more than a bunch of rocks that look really nice you have to have a sky ground dualism. One has to mirror the other. So if Stonehenge keeps evolving, it goes from these massive outer uh, stone rings, which, by the way, I think it was about for 10 years ago that they did some uh, carbon-14 dating of those post holes, and they found that, yes, the dating is 8,000 BC. So we knew that 30 years ago. So in 3,500 BC, the blue stones get taken to the centers of uh, blue stones where, it, where they are today. And then uh, 600 years later, with another big earth change that occurred, the big stones were brought in. So it keeps evolving like an organism, but it's still very much alive and well. Uh, it tends to shut itself down like a self-regulating organism during the day when you know 5,000 people show up doing selfies, because it's not about the site, it's about them. Right. That's what irritates me so much about today's culture. I've got to work on my Zen. <laughs> if you go there after hours, which you used to be able to do quite regularly, I used to know all the guards there, they're lovely people. Now it's become a big corporate exercise, but the site changes when you go there after hours and you show it the proper respect it's a totally different situation you could feel this thing you can interact with it you can have some incredible downloads when you go into the middle of stonehenge in the evening or early in the morning by yourself with the right reverence the site is a living organism and it reacts to your intent as well and that you only understand this if you do this i can talk about this and people go oh god another new age guy talking about feeling you have to understand it by going there and experiencing it and only then would you see oh it really does work that way yes it does the sites are electromagnetically active and you can still in fact um 
in my second book, The Divine Blueprint, I actually have a dowsing map of the uh, all the energy forms or some of the energy forms in and around Stonehenge. It's a very active site in terms of electromagnetism and also what it does to the water underneath the site. So it's still living, but with all the uh, commercialism and the wrong attention that's been fostered upon it, it self-protects during the day. But go there after hours, totally different thing. Right, right. And I recommend folks, if they want to take a trip out to that part of the world, get your newest book and, and go see some megalithic sites that maybe aren't as popular and swamp with, you know, vain tourists, right? I would imagine that the Scottish sites are, are probably a lot less frequently visited and maybe a little more pristine. We don't have Not that very much. So. We don't have that much time. But what, what else can folks uh, expect to find when they when they pick up that book, Mr. Silva? Oh, there's a whole connection that goes, like I said, all the way back to the prehistory of Sardinia, which has an incredible story. They talk about, uh, the locals still talk about the giants that used to live there and the tall people associated with Orion and all the priests that were astronomers. They was a part of an outpost of this sinking island in the middle of the Atlantic. And uh, back then when the sea level was Sardinia and Corsica formed a big landmass in the middle of the Mediterranean. So I've seen pyramids in Sardinia. I had no idea that they had pyramids in Sardinia. Uh, they had giants buried everywhere. People have been told to shut up. They've been you know, put down by the police and the church. So there's a big sort of uh, stretch to, to get people to be quiet about this ancient civilization. And then you've got the connection with Armenia, which is a whole different ball game, something that few people know about. And it's from there that we learn what was happening in Western Europe. And then what happened with Ireland with the movement of this divine bloodline and why the church, when they arrive in the historical era, wanted to completely decimate the uh, bloodline and also rewrite history, which of course they did. So the book is a complete synthesis of three different lands, sorry, four different lands, not just one, to show the whole migration over 6,000 years of this uh, uh, divine culture, and also why it was so important to maintain the integrity of the information, because civilization was moving, and, you know, human uh, evolution was changing, sometimes not for the better. So the only way you're going to maintain a grounding to the uh, divine is by keeping the information moving from place to place. That's why Scotland is so important. That's why it's very well protected. And that's why a few people go there and the ones that do go there, oh, you're going to be very well rewarded. Least of all, because there'll be drums to drink at the end of the day. Which, by the way, is the most famous word in the Scottish language. When you ask for a wee drum at the pub, that's an Armenian name. It means exactly the same thing, a warm drink. Wow. All right. And that's the, that's the thing, Freddie. It seems that you've become a linguistic master, and with that, it helps you really understand these you know, subtle things that most archaeologists, as you say, they're so set in their ways. They're so adverse to a sort of uh, synergistic approach or an interdisciplinary approach that they end up being 50, 60 years behind. You said 20, but I'll I'll add 40 more years because it, Absolutely. I really don't think that, you know, they can appreciate your approach and it's not, you know, I don't know if it's it's their own fault, but it seems there's a university aspect. The archaeologists are in a club and they don't want, you know. Oh, very to, much so. You know, they, they limit themselves more than more than anything. 
It's a very conservative field, and it's also not much money to go around. There are not many positions in universities to go around, so they're very self-protective. And once they read the consensus, they don't want to get out of that consensus right. because their uh, reputation depends on it. Well, the, pr- the whole purpose of science is to keep evolving with the emerging information, and that's what independent people like me are good at. Well, I hope we are, because we are not confined by a box. I, if there's someone in Armenia who's a linguist and says, by the way, did you realize that the place names of all the sites in Ireland and Scotland have an Armenian origin, I go, well, please tell me, because I really would like to know that, because it helps me to understand what's taking place in those sites. And it really do. I asked Robert Schock and other geologists, how old do you think this really is according to geology? Well, now you've got another spectrum of information. You've got to have a multidisciplinary point of view. You can't just be sort of picking and choosing here and there. You've got to expand your awareness. None of us have all the, all the answers. I don't have all the answers. I rely on other people who are experts in their field to help me connect all of these dots. And that's what makes it fun. But not many people want to go there. But that's their problem. They don't have half as much fun as we do. Agreed. And this has been a real treat. I appreciate you sharing so much with us here in such a short amount of time. Freddie, can you please tell us where we can go to find the books and, and the documentaries? Oh, God, yes. The most important part, invisibletemple.com. Wonderful. And everything can be found there. I definitely recommend folks check out his book, First Templar Nation. I've been enjoying it. And Freddie, uh, I'd love to make my way up there to Maine if you're ever doing uh, a tour or speaking event or something like that in the area. I'm going to keep my eyes open, keep my eyes peeled. One coming up maybe at the end of June. We're trying to get, we had a sellout event in New Hampshire uh, a couple of weeks ago. So I want to do another one. Right on. So, and there's probably be beer afterwards, so definitely recommend it. Excellent. Where can I find info for that? On the website as well? It'll be my events page. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for being here, Freddie, and for the well, listeners. For me. Appreciate it. Of course, of course. And everyone listening, have a great moment wherever you are in the now. That's it. Here we are. The My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Freddie Silva, an amazing, brilliant guy, globetrotter, innovating, making discoveries, making connections, giving presentations. And here he is in New England, like me. What are the odds? And as I was saying to Freddie in this conversation, Richard Grossinger, the guest who will be on this Monday happens to be in Maine as well. And last summer, Maine played a big part in my journey, my girlfriend's journey, our journeys intersecting and becoming one journey. So, and I, in a way, have to give her credit because she brought Freddie Silva to my attention initially. She said, hey, check this out. And we watched his documentary about Moo. And it was a great documentary. I highly recommend it. It's fascinating to think how far back 
these civilizations really go you know when you, you get into this topic you think oh atlantis that's where it starts right nope 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 goes back way further and even mesoamerica is so complicated man i mean you, you use these words mayans aztecs you know people just say them like they all mean the same thing but let me tell you brothers and sisters it started with the olmecs and according to freddy there is a culture that goes back even further than them called the each the each right so fascinating stuff but yeah for those who care it was the olmecs then teotihuacan and the tula people and then somewhere around there the aztecs came into play and for, forgive me folks this is all off the top of my head this is off my memory and uh, there was the zapoteca right zapotec we have the yeah zapotec the mistec the toltec the aztec and then the mayan and not exactly in that order those are sort of overlapping and some of those are concurrent with one another but it's so much more complicated than just the aztec or just the olmec or just you know so forgive me folks for any time i've misspoke in past episodes when mesoamerica was concerned uh, specifically with andre visan probably used the words interchangeably when they shouldn't be used interchangeably um and that's the point of this show is for me to learn as well i am not a know-it-all i hope i could teach you guys something i hope i can help guide anyone who listens to this show whoever feels called to listen to this show um but i am also on my own journey and i'm learning things as well and sharpening my skills and growing each episode growing each day so yeah i'm gonna get things wrong and i really love it when people reach out and share what they know and even if that means correcting me just do it nicely please not that anyone corrected me about this uh, mesoamerica thing i actually just kind of came to this realization a couple minutes prior to recording this outro here uh as i was writing the intro i was reviewing some books that i have and i'm like oh wow yeah i really shouldn't uh just speak so loosely about all these different groups when the truth is they're all very unique in and of themselves and yes they have uh overlap and they are interconnected in many ways and there is cross cultural uh pollination cross-cultural contamination and of course with colonialism there's always that bias that we have to keep in consideration that a lot of this stuff that's written in the english language is inherently biased when it comes to certain demographics and certain subjects but hey we're doing the best we can with what we got folks and it's all the more easier when we have brilliant folks like freddie silva and what a synchronicity that he actually met and worked with Talakiel, someone who michael wan speaks about almost mythically and that's not no discredit against mike but he's you know mike is such a good storyteller that 
you know, the way he spoke about Talakiel, which we actually had a whole episode of your handbook for the apocalypse where we spoke about Talakiel. Um, it's just really strange that, you know, I hadn't considered that he was a real living person that living people who are still alive to this day have actually met and maybe were friends with. And wow, Freddie Silva is one of them. And I should mention, I think I did mention in this interview that it's the 20th anniversary of Freddie Silva's amazing book about crop circles. He is a leading expert, so you got to give credit where it's due. And he gives credit where it's due in saying that Talakiel and other Mayan elders and Native American elders were a big part. They played a big role in deciphering the crop circles. And that hits home with me in a very deep and profound way. And I think that's that's about it. I'll leave it at that. We have a lot of really awesome episodes that have already come out this week. Two great episodes and another one on the way this Friday. And if you're listening to this sometime way in the future, well, hey, thanks for passing on through and picking this episode. If you like this type of topic, I've interviewed a lot of different guests in this particular realm, this frame of reference, this uh, ancient America, ancient history, uh, occulted history, forgotten history. We've talked a lot about this subject, and I plan on talking about it a lot more. Um, But all of you listening here in the now, I appreciate you being here with me. Look forward to an episode of Illuminati Confirmed coming out this Friday the humorous, comical, less serious show that I do with Chris and Juan. And yeah, you can get the bonus show for Illuminati Confirmed on the Patreon. I cannot go any episode without giving a shout out to my patrons. I love you all. I could not do it without you. And if you're listening, thank you for listening. Thank you for spending your time on this show. If you have it in you, to share some of your talent or your treasure with us you can do that by signing up for patreon supporting the show with a monthly donation or just sending a one-time donation now in the episode description i have all of the different ways you can send me or the podcast money keep in mind i'm the only person who works on this podcast it's just me i record i schedule interviews with guests i do the research and i record the conversations. I take those recordings. I edit them. I fine tune them. I take the videos. I take those and put them on Rockfin. Occasionally I'll put them on Patreon. Uh, Sorry, Patreon people. If you like the video, uh, I can send you links. I promise. Uh, And then also I stay in touch with everybody on the Patreon. We have our own exclusive Patreon telegram for patrons only. And we're doing monthly meetups we didn't do one last month sorry about that folks but we'll do one this month and uh yeah couldn't do it without you really appreciate everyone who supports the show uh like i said it's solely funded and operated by me and the people who support the show so yeah the more help we can get the better the show will get the more time i can dedicate to the show and so on and so forth Value for value, baby. You get a bunch of cool stuff if you do support the show. We got merch and all that good stuff. 
starting to feel like a salesman at the end of these episodes. If you don't like it, let me know. I put it at the outro because I used to do it in the intro and, eh, you know, I don't want to, you know, I want to put that at the front and like kind of derail the momentum because I think the intro music really like gears you in and then the intros that I do prime you for the conversation. Then here we are in the outro where only the real G's stick around. So real, recognize real, come on over to the Patreon and introduce yourself. Support us. Give us a five-star review and rating. Even if you've given one in the past, Giraffe Killer, shout out to you, recently gave a five-star rating. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Or sister. I don't know. Men or women could murder giraffes not that I encourage that actually I discourage that but I'm pretty sure giraffe killer comes from an episode of tinfoil hat where XG uh, (laughs) regrettably admitted that he would kill a giraffe on a safari or something I don't want to I don't want to butcher it it was funny and I know XG didn't mean it but you know how comedy can be when someone (laughs) misspeaks and everybody in the room jumps on them about it so if that's what you're referencing giraffe killer well that's hilarious uh if you're not well then that's kind of concerning because i'm very tall and when i was a kid people used to call me a giraffe so uh yeah just maybe pulling on my collar a little bit over here letting some of that cartoon steam out anyways we're here in the Patreon. Oops, I misspoke. We're here in the outro of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I do this all off the top of the dome, okay? Sharpening my skills. Sometimes I don't even edit out my flubs. I think this is going to be an outro where I just let it all hang. It's all going to stick around. If you hear me stop and start again, that's because I thought I was going to go in and edit it out. So I sound smart, Uh, but sometimes you don't, you know, and that's important for you guys to know is that like there is editing that goes into this show to deliver a certain amount of quality um, for you as the listener. And that might give the impression that we don't say things like, you know, or, um, or, you know, and that happens. People say, um, and ah, and they... But for me, I like to delete that stuff. I like to edit it out because I think it's just, you know, there I go. Do it again. Just, you know, it takes away from the conversation sometimes. But anyways, that's important to know. And uh, now I'm really just rambling on about nothing. There's a lot. I actually recorded a couple of these in a short amount of time. So that's probably why... I feel like I don't have much to talk about. Ooh, um, here's something I can mention before we go. Your Handbook for the Apocalypse, the show that I do with Michael Wan. We just had our first guest in a long time. We had uh, Slick Dissident, shout out to Gabe, on for episode 12. But we haven't had a guest on since, and we did recently. So look out for that. It'll be coming out soon. I'm going to edit that tomorrow anyways thank you so much for being here and enjoy the moment 
wherever you are in the now.